Welcome to Inside Track from Planet Tracker, a series of podcasts where we talk about some of the key themes the investment and finance community needs to know about for COP27 this November. I'm Peter Elwin, Director of Fixed Income and Head of the Food and Land Use Programme at Planet Tracker. And in each episode of Inside Track, my guests discuss the finance community's role working alongside policymakers to transform sectors and systems and offer some insights to help us navigate the negotiations in Egypt. Welcome back to Inside Track. In this episode, I'm joined by Planet Tracker's CEO, Robin Millington. We'll be shedding some light on natural capital and how its analysis fits into the investment decision-making process. Hi, Robin. Welcome. Hi, Peter. We hear the term natural capital thrown around an awful lot and used interchangeably with nature and biodiversity. Um, And it's also commonly looked at both by financial institutions and policymakers as a separate issue to climate change. And and I wanted to sort of just start on on that point. Is this separation right? From our perspective, natural capital and climate change intersect. And we as the financial community should stop talking about them as different things. But is that a fair assessment of Planet Tracker's position? Absolutely, Peter. And thank you for bringing that very important point up. Climate is nature. And how we keep talking about it as climate and then nature is puzzling to me. It's something that we really, really must be bringing into a more holistic view in terms of the way the world talks about our environmental issues. So if we're talking about the various terms, biodiversity gets down to a species level. It came out of a time when we were looking at species. But if you start adding that up to a more general or a more holistic view, we need to start talking about ecosystem services. So the term natural capital has flowed out of that need to look at nature as a piece of capital in the equation rather than just an externality. And in traditional economics, we've assumed that there will be nature somewhere. Even if we don't have it, if we deforest something, there'll be a forest next door or some other company will be able to to sell us their forest or their resource. But these days, we now have to look at everything with limitations. There's a scarcity issue, but it's not scarcity to a particular company. It's scarcity in the overall ecosystem. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? That's that's really crucial, this, this idea that actually we're living in a planet which has boundaries rather than a limitless system. Exactly. And what I find necessary is for us to understand how we price that into everything that we're doing. It's interesting when we start talking about the loss of some of the mineral resources. So we need lithium and various things for the batteries in electric vehicles. You have groups out there that are trying to look at asteroid mining. And that to me is just perplexing because what we really must do is bring this right back down to Earth with everything that we have here on Earth, and learn to live within our limitations, which is what Planet Tracker is now trying to put into its analytics, is an understanding that these resources are not unlimited. That's really interesting. And actually, I mean, that reminds me of of, of the phrase donut economics, which uh, um, I know is something you're, you're familiar with. But just to sort of explore this point about, you know, externalities and internalities a bit more. I mean, a lot of our, our audience will, will understand exactly what's what's going on there. But can you just sort of expand on that point a bit, Robin? So when you talk about, you know, it's an externality, and that's a phrase that other people use, what's underpinning that concept of sort of inside and outside the economic system? 
It's the feeling in traditional economics that, you know, water is always going to be there. Somehow we have enough water, and people still say that to me. The world has enough water for everybody. But if you're sitting in a state like California and looking at water, there is a drying up of all the ground-based water. There's a drying up of the water that's coming down in the rain and going into the dams. Where is that water going to come from? Yes, there may be water in Pakistan, which is overly flooded right now, but you can't get that water from Pakistan to California. So talking about water as a general resource that will always be there is an externality. Somehow we will find a source of water. Internalizing that means we have to start pricing in the limitation on that water. That's really, really helpful. And so, you know, natural capital is is a way of trying to frame the process mm. of, of internalizing those externalities. And I guess one of the other key questions, I mean, you and I get asked this a lot in conversations with sort of financial institutions and, and, and other, other people, you know, the Dasgupta report on on nature and and its importance to the economy. He actually admitted that he just used sort of nature, natural capital, biodiversity, all of those different terms as sort of interchangeably. Mm. But I but I get the impression that that you think there's sort of merit in in differentiating between them. And I wondered if you could sort of expand on on that a bit. You know, fundamentally, what is the difference between sort of nature and natural capital, maybe? And then and then biodiversity feels like something slightly different. Nature is what's around us. It's the air, the sky, the land, the soil, the birds and the bees. Natural capital is the valuation of that nature. It's the capital input to whatever it is that we're looking at. But look at cars. Now, you wouldn't think of them as nature, but the materials in a car have been heavily processed, but it all comes from nature in the beginning. So that is dependent on natural capital to produce that car. And then biodiversity, in fact, I was just speaking with the head of sustainability for a large company who has done 40% of the land that they own. They've gone down to minutia in terms of metrics to do a complete baseline assessment of what is happening in their natural capital, if you will. They're creating an understanding of what it is that they own so that they can be looking over time at how that is changing, either better or worse. But if you're looking um, at species, for example, that's not telling you the whole story of what's in that capital content, right? Mm, yeah. And biodiversity is very much looking at the individual species of insects, species of birds, species of plants. And, and I do think that there are different ways of looking at nature. Not all nature is natural capital, but biodiversity doesn't necessarily give us a whole feeling of that ecosystem with the capital inputs there. I, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. And it's interesting. I mean, I was um, I was talking to another, well, one of the uh, big Dutch financial institutions recently, and they've got a big focus on biodiversity. And and in our conversation, I mean, the, the, the sort of core focus they have is biodiversity is, is one of the ways of measuring uh, the state of natural capital, if you like, and, and particularly the sort of direction of travel. So I mean, I'm interested in your your conversation with that that big corporate. That if you want to assess your your footprint on the planet, 
then you need a you need a measure. You need some sort of metric to say, are we are we making things better? Are we making things worse? Are things improving? Are things getting worse? And biodiversity is one of the ways of uh, of actually assessing that footprint, that impact, and that sort of path forward. Whereas, as you say, natural capital is effectively the sort of uh, the value of the natural assets on on which you actually rely. But you made a, an interesting point just then when we were talking about biodiversity, and I think this is one of the the challenges that differentiates looking at nature, natural capital, looking at biodiversity, differentiates that from the climate debate. And that's this, this local, this sort of regional or focused issue. So the nature is location specific, isn't it? Climate is much less so. Is that fair? Yes. And I mean, the example I just gave of California and water is one example of that. I suppose that the problem I have with the feeling that we can only deal with it locally is that in some ways, we still have global issues. We still have to supply a global population with food. And that, though it's locally produced, it's still a global supply chain. So I do worry sometimes in the debate between nature and climate that we say nature is much harder to deal with because it's local and it's too fragmented and we can't really get to all the metrics that we need to get to. I do worry that we're overcomplicating it. Yes, we have to get down to the local level if we're doing a baseline assessment of what's there. But we still have a broader, more global set of issues that are uh, embedded in this whole discussion of natural capital. And I sometimes worry that people hide behind that as a reason for non-action or not moving on the issues as quickly as they could. Oh, we have to do an inventory. Oh, we have to know this. Oh, we have to know that. At a certain point, you have to also just get forward with this. Some of these metrics are very important, but you can get at a more global level in the discussion as well. So a picture came into my mind as you were talking, Robin, about large organizations that employ thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. All of those people are individuals. They're based in different locations. They have different personal circumstances. They have different circumstances in terms of their their social networks. The company wants to make sure it can motivate them all, pay them appropriately. That's a really complicated problem. But companies manage to do that by having overarching policies and overarching processes that ultimately treat all of those people in a sort of a a fair way, in a broadly in a similar way across the whole organization. So they have a they have a solution to what is potentially a very complicated problem, but they don't go, oh, we've got hundreds of thousands of individuals, that's too difficult to manage. They get on with it. And maybe actually, you know, that's the answer from a biodiversity nature perspective, isn't it? Yeah, of course, we've got factories in all sorts of different countries. But actually, we know what we want to achieve, which is to do less harm and do more good. Absolutely spot on point, Peter. Spot on. And if companies can, corporates, large corporates can do that, we certainly can be addressing the local versus the global reporting on how we're doing around nature and natural capital. So that's a really interesting, interesting sort of point. And maybe that's quite encouraging. It's a challenge, I think, as you say, companies tend to say, oh, this is complicated. Financial institutions do the same. But actually, what we're sort of uh, concluding, I guess, at this stage of the discussion is you know, yes, there's a data collection challenge because you need to know what's going on in individual places around the world. But the overall sort of system and the approach that you need to put in place is actually much simpler, I guess, conceptually, and and definitely not something that a company um, can sort of shy away from. Is that a fair sort of 
conclusion? I think so. And if I can just offer one of the things I tell a lot of people in my journey is that we cannot let perfection be the enemy of progress. And I hear in my different panels and various uh, conversations that we don't have the data. And I will say that is absolutely not true. There is a multitude, a plethora of data out there. The, it's, the problem is we don't have data easily accessible, easily relevant, easily usable by, say, an analyst who is under time pressure and trying to turn out a report in a day or two. Or, and sometimes we have to integrate that data the best we can. And people are hiding behind that as a reason for inaction. There's no data, so therefore I can't do anything. And if a small think tank like ours can sit down and find data on all these different issues that we are finding data on, data is available. Now, what the initiatives that are going on, such as the TNFD are looking at, is trying to create a um, commonality so that there is a common point at which we all know how to report against all of these issues. But we can't just wait for that to happen. Time is up. I think people still think we can get to 2050 because that is a target that has been set and this is what people are talking about. But the truth is 2050 is a long way out given all of the crises that we're beginning to face in the climate system but also the food system. And it's not just because of the Ukraine. The food crisis was already growing and Ukraine was just that black swan that was tipping it over the edge. I think that 2030 is today. It's not eight years from now. And if we sit and wait for these different frameworks, if we wait for perfect metrics, if we wait for the indexes, we are in trouble. It has to happen now. You can't wait for the absolute perfect metric that's coming from just this local community. You have to be working with what's available. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's so true. And, you know, you mentioned sort of 2050 and then 2030. And that, that brings me back to a point that you were making right at the beginning, which is, is the importance of not separating climate from nature, regarding the two things as completely intertwined. And, and I wondered if you could just sort of expand on that a little bit, because that feels very important in the context where we've got COP27, which is focused very explicitly on climate. And then lo and behold, a month later in different city, Montreal, we've got COP15. So that sounds as though it's running sort of um, 12 points behind the climate debate. Um, COP15, which is the, uh, the, the COP on biodiversity. So from a policy and a government perspective, these things seem to be running very much in parallel, not integrated. But we think that's wrong, don't we, at Planet Tracker? Well, you know, the reality is these things are evolutions because different ministries oversee some of this issue. So you have different ministries involved in the biodiversity COP versus the climate COP. My personal belief is, I know politically this won't happen, but my personal belief is these things need to dovetail. It should no longer just be separated out in different political processes. Because if we don't see climate as nature and don't see the metrics of climate as integrated into those metrics that we're beginning to develop for the nature issue we will never actually solve something. An example, if you over-focus just on solving the emissions issue, you won't necessarily solve the food issue. So if we solved emissions tomorrow, which of course we're not going to, you still have to feed 10 billion people by 2050. And that 
solving of emissions doesn't improve the soil health, which is a huge problem, doesn't redistribute the water as we need. And we've seen through COVID and again with Ukraine, the fragility of global supply chains. And we have to stop looking at nature solutions as just solving the emissions problem, because we also have to solve things like the food production problem. Yeah. And I'm afraid that the unintended consequences of narrowly focusing on just one set of metrics leaves us exposed to actually creating more problems for these other things in nature that we really depend on. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, because I think you could potentially criticize the sort of IPCC report and 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 other sort of focuses on climate as almost continuing to regard nature as that inexhaustible resource. Yes, we will we will be able to reforest. We'll have lots of trees that can absorb all the carbon we need. But exactly as you've said, if we cover the whole world in forests, then we've got no wheat and rice fields. We can't feed our population. So there has to be a balance. We have to solve the climate crisis using nature, but within the planetary boundaries uh, that, that we are sort of first subject to. I mean, there's some examples, aren't there, of trying to use nature to solve the emissions problems that hasn't actually gotten where it was hoping to go. So if you want to look at the biofuels, it's really not created a huge dent in the emissions issue, and yet it's taken up so much arable land that could be used to be producing food stock rather than just uh, fuel. Yeah. And another example I like to use is uh, three or four months ago, there were major riots in the Netherlands. The farmers shut down all the freeways. They They threw slurry over the minister's house because the Supreme Court focused on the 1.5 degree commitment they had made, which is quite right. I mean, there's nothing incorrect about wanting to make that target. But by doing so, they closed hundreds of farms in the Netherlands. And of course, the export of that food is important for the Dutch economy. But who is going to produce the food? If we start shutting the farms because of the emissions that they're doing, where are we going to get the food to continue feeding the people? I mean, there are unintended consequences of just looking at one metric. Yeah. Yes. And that and that goes back again to, to this sort of concept of natural capital, doesn't it? That you actually want organizations and indeed governments to look at their their entire resource base on a sort of a, a collective or an aggregate basis rather than picking on one particular component or another. If we're thinking about natural capital, you know, why should financial institutions be concerned about it? Why do we at Planet Tracker think they should be including it in their analysis. What's what's the objective of doing that? Well, it's part of valuing how safe the company is, isn't it? Mm. If you're not taking care of your natural capital, you're at risk. And maybe it's short term, maybe it's long term, but eventually most companies that are dependent on any sort of natural capital, and except for maybe the IT companies, but I'm even even they need uh, components for all of their technology, don't they? Yeah. Everything is dependent on natural capital. And if we keep ignoring it, and if we keep not putting it into the analyses, you know, how are you managing your capital? How are you managing your financial capital? Well, how are you managing your human capital? And how are you managing your natural capital? I think it's just a vitally important piece of 
analytics that people have just tended not to grapple with because it hasn't been the thing that people have been focused on. What raises that in my mind, and I'll look to you, Peter, it's my turn to ask you a question. Why have we not integrated that into our financial thinking before this? Yeah, no, well, I think that's a very fair question. And uh, and, and to slightly avoid it, but to give an example uh, by way of answer, I mean, we published a report last year called No Rain on the Plain that was looking at natural capital from a sovereign perspective. And the same analysis applies as the one that you've just been outlining that, you know, in this case, we, we looked at Brazil as the case study. And Brazil is a very rich nation, but very dependent upon its natural resources on its natural capital base. And deforestation as one of the core sort of uh, environmental harms is depleting that natural capital. And as any financial analyst would uh, would tell you, if you deplete your capital base, ultimately the company will fail. And the same is true at a sovereign level. If you deplete your natural capital base, ultimately the economy of Brazil will suffer the consequences of that. But to answer your actual question, Robin, why why are people not including that? I think there are a number of possible examples. One might be that fundamentally at business school in the past, uh, it wasn't on the curriculum. People weren't told in their discounted cash flow forecasts, their DCF model, they weren't actually told to include uh, the natural capital base for the company. Or indeed, if you were doing sovereign bond analysis, you wouldn't include it in your economic model for the country. So I think there was a a built-in blind spot. Now that, it feels to me, has been um, to some extent corrected over the years, although my own sort of personal experience of financial models in uh, institutions is that they still don't explicitly include natural capital from a valuation perspective, or not very often. And certainly when you're looking at sort of sovereign credit ratings, for example, all too often the credit ratings agencies say, well, you know, the consequences of climate or natural capital depletion are beyond our investment horizon, they're beyond our forecast horizon, or we think they're so sort of distant, we'll discount them to a present value of of very little. And that feels to me to be fundamentally wrong. I mean, I think going back perhaps to the uh, rather famous or infamous Stuart Kirk presentation, where he was talking about HSBC having a sort of average loan length of, what was it, six years, and uh, and therefore something happening 15 years out uh, is therefore not relevant. Well, of course, if you're a business or if indeed you're a country, you want to be continuing for a very long period of time. So the six-year period that you're looking at now quite rapidly turns into another six-year period, six years beyond the first, that's 12, and so it quickly goes on. So these consequences that we're looking out uh, to sort of 2050 even are actually much nearer to hand. And, and the point you made earlier, 2030, it's only eight years away. In fact, slightly less now, seven and a bit. From a planning perspective, that's a very short period of time, isn't it? So w- what do we need to see in the near term to get financial institutions and indeed to get corporates to really begin to factor in natural capital? Well, I think, in fact, the more progressive corporates are doing that now. I think a lot of people are really scrambling at the moment to try and figure out what this looks like. I think the advent of TNFD will be very helpful. There are different organizations working on the various metrics. I know a number of financial institutions are putting together indexes and benchmarks and, you know, various financial tools to try and address it. I think what is the issue for a lot of people is just the lack of standardization across the thinking. Because when you talk about nature, it's not just a 1.5 degree single 
target that we can put on, okay, we don't want the emissions. I mean, nature brings a complexity that a lot of people find hard to grapple with. I mean, it's human nature to want to simplify, Mm -hmm. isn't it? The KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. So in the climate world, which is where I have been working for many, many years before stepping over into this role, we were hurting ourselves by making everything too complex. People thought there's that big atmosphere up there. There's so many different factors feeding into it. How could we ever get our arms around it? It was when that simple metric of two degrees, which is now 1.5 degrees, was brought in that people were able to consolidate around action on something. Now, Nature is never going to allow us to do that. There is no one or two or three metrics because there are just too many different factors. So the big challenge is going to be how to simplify that so people can get their arms around it without losing the complexity. Yeah, that's really interesting challenge. And um, you've mentioned the TNFD twice, uh, at least, and we, we probably need to venture briefly into the sort of alphabet soup that is relating to assessing nature and natural capital. So TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related Disclosures, TCFD, which is the sort of the climate carbon uh, body, and now we've got TNFD, which is in the process of developing a framework. So can you just briefly sort of expand on what the TNFD is is trying to achieve? Well, it recognised the people that and the companies that became part of putting this together recognised that, again, this discussion we've been having, only dealing with emissions is not dealing with the whole issue. TNFD is now racing, if you will, to catch up with where TCFD has gotten to. But I think personally at the end of the day, these two things have to dovetail together somehow. But the problem is they're just at different stages of development right now. And TNFD still needs to get its metrics put together to be a little bit more able to then start looking at how these two thought processes or two frameworks will integrate into a more uh, cohesive collection. And I'm not sure if anybody from TNFD or TCFD listening to this necessarily agrees with all of that. But I do think that that's inevitable. It gives frameworks for being able to start looking at your company and how do we start thinking about this? How do we start measuring some of these things? So they're trying ultimately to create something that will, going back to the point you were making earlier, help organisations and indeed countries to sort of handle the complexity in terms of measurement and then reporting. Because once we have that much more sort of packaged data set, then it becomes intrinsically a lot easier for financial institutions to uh, to sort of deal with the problem. So one of the things I think has been a, an extremely interesting move, and this is something I think you can talk to, is the development of the ISSB, so the Sustainability Accounting Standards, which in some ways brings in a bit of heft, doesn't it? Because if you're doing reporting against some of the accounting standards and you misreport, there's a legal liability attached to that, isn't there? And when you start becoming legally liable, it becomes a little bit more real for some people. That's pretty important. I think the development of the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, is a very, very important step forward. Um, and running alongside the TNFD, it's it's building a, a suite of financial, well, sustainability reporting standards uh, for companies that uh, that ultimately the hope is uh, they will become globally adopted. It's interesting looking across the accounting side of things because we still have 
two accounting languages in the world. We have IFRS, which is used by many countries and companies be outside the US. And then we have US GAAP, which is used obviously mainly by US companies, but also one or two else around the world. So we haven't quite got to that single universal language. We've still got a little, little trace of Babel coming in there. But at the moment, from a sustainability perspective, uh, we've got a, a, a wide sort of suite of alternative standards. And hopefully the ISSB will bring that together, which would be a, a huge step forward. But as you were saying earlier, I mean, this is going to take some time. We believe that nature and climate should ultimately come together in terms of the policymaking agenda and the regulatory focus. Uh, but it's obvious that there is still some catching up to be done on the sort of uh, on the nature side in terms of measurement, in terms of uh, disclosure, in terms of ultimately financial institutions really beginning to uh, to take on board uh, this issue. And I guess that leads me to a to a slightly sort of depressing question, maybe to uh, to to close with. You know, is it too late for transformational change? I mean, have, have we ultimately missed the boat in terms of uh, of really? achieving a nature positive outcome, which is one of the, the core sort of goals of the UN, for example. Is it too late for transformational change? What is there that we can still do? It's never too late. We as a species are creative, inventive, innovative. We can still help ourselves. What I feel is that we simply have to get that global political will in place. And there has to be a universal political will. And I think it's coming. I think it's coming so much more rapidly than I expected. When we entered this space four years ago, anybody talking about nature was sidelined. We weren't, we were a side event that nobody was really paying much attention to. Suddenly in the last 18 months, it's become a global um, snowball. And back to your previous question about CDB, the conference in Montreal for biodiversity, it is I think gaining momentum, hopefully we will walk out of that conference with a framework that could be as significant as the Paris framework was for climate, which lends a sort of urgency, a snowball effect to the whole set of work going on. I don't think it's ever too late for transformation. I think we can do it if we just decide we are going to do it. I mean, something I always do ask is most executives, most professionals, they have children and grandchildren, don't they? This is not just for us. It's for our heritage and it's for our our whole world. And I don't see that we have to wait any longer. We can do it with a sense of urgency or we can wait until the crisis is upon us and then scramble to try and figure out how we're going to survive it. But if we do it now, we can control it a lot more than if we wait so I hope people will just get a sense of urgency around this and start doing what needs to be done. That's a fantastic point to end on, Robin. Thank you so much. Now, our episode today, we've discussed how natural capital and climate are completely interlinked. One affects the other. And as such, financial institutions must factor natural capital into their investment decision-making processes. At this year's Climate Cop, we need governments to put nature centre stage where it needs to be if we are to solve the climate crisis that we're facing. Thanks for listening again. Coming up in our next episode of Planet Tracker's Inside Track, Head of Research John Willis joins me with Rachel Hemingway from the Climate Bonds Initiative to examine sustainable financial instruments. We ask if they work and why they're going to be such a big focus at COP27 this year. You can subscribe to Planet Tracker's Inside Track wherever you get your podcasts or by going to Planet Tracker's YouTube channel. I'm Peter Owen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>